0: Hey everybody! Today I am here with Gary Cardone, the CEO and co-founder of Chargebacks Nine One One. How you doing, Gary?
1: Good, thank you. Good chatting with you, James.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, so I thought, you know, Gary, what we do—I know a lot of people have already heard of you; they know what you do—but I thought we could step back a little bit and give a little backstory. How did you end up getting into this industry? How did you end up starting Chargebacks Nine One One? Give us a little context, if you would.
1: Yeah. Um, so my background is in marketing and economics. Uh, finished college in uh, a small little town in Louisiana. Ended up in the oil and gas business for 20 years and was lucky enough to join the right platform and was able to retire at a relatively young age uh, after helping the energy business in the United States and Europe deregulate. Uh, met my partner, my my partner today, Monica Eaton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cardone, who's our really the, the chief architect of Chargebacks 911, and okay. she got me interested and involved in e-commerce. Um, back in 2007-ish, we decided to become retailers after studying the market. Thought it was a good time to go into the market. That was her background, uh, consumers and sure. e-com. Uh, built a business in two and a half years to about 63, $64 million a year in sales from zero. We didn't know what a gateway was and acquire a pro- <laughs> We didn't know anything about sure. processing and, uh, then ran into, you know, the devil, which is what we call chargebacks, right. uh, couldn't understand it, hired a bunch of, uh, inverted quota, uh, quotations. Experts spent about <laughs> right. 4 or $5, 6000000 million over two years trying to fix the problem with these experts and then realized, hey, these experts are using a lot of dated uh, knowledge right. or no knowledge, uh, and they're basically just selling gid- uh, widgets to us, but we were trying to solve the problem. We knew we weren't committing fraud. We were getting fraud from the e-commerce channels. Of course, there was some real fraud, but most of this was not real. Right. So Monica got, got jacked up enough, uh, excited enough, and she's a really brilliant human being who has a, you know, she likes solving puzzles.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, she began building a solution to solve her own problem, and then the acquiring banks that we were using uh, started asking us to help their clients. This is 2012, uh, January 2012. Okay. We built our first customer in 2012, kind of on a consultancy contract, and by April of that year, 2012, we had shut down our merchant business and began building uh, in earnest chargebacks number one. That's the business we have today. Hmm.
0: Wow. So. Why, you know, like it's so funny because we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the chargebacks, but it's like, why are they so confusing? You know, it seems like, uh, you know, everybody is lost when it comes to chargebacks. What's the deal with it? Why is it so confusing? What were the challenges you guys faced initially with trying to figure it out?
1: I think the, 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 the job we faced initially is the job that the entire industry is currently facing today and many of your audience may not like the answer i'm going to give you but the reason that chargebacks are so complex and so so confusing is one they are designed to be confusing (laughs) it was never payments was never designed to be simple uh which is a whole conversation in and of itself Right. but if you if you really appreciate that the payment rails if there is such a thing as rails in, in the payments industry, in the energy business, there are truly rails. Right. pipelines, grids, right. there's connection points, physical connection points. In payments, I would challenge you if the word "rail has been maybe is the right word, overstated. Because <laughs> right. okay? it looks to us like a bunch of contracts that had been cobbled together over 30 years. Right. The problem with chargebacks and the complexity to it is that it's, it's a construct, okay? This is a con, it, it's just a theory, it's a theory. And the theory was designed to ensure that consumers felt comfortable moving from money and checks to plastic. Hmm. And in order to do that, the schemes came out and said, look, we guarantee any of your purchases.
2: Right. You're
1: not going to be exposed. In the merchant community, the pitch was, hey, you won't have NSF, you won't have bounced checks, you won't have any of these problems. Right. Funny enough, fast forward 30, 30 years, and we're declining over 9% of every transaction. Refunds are exploding. Chargebacks are completely out of control. Right. Clearly something's not working. We're right back to 1968, 70. So um, the, the, we would suggest adoption has occurred massively. Sure. There's seven credit cards in everybody's pocket. Right. Uh, so adoption's curve, Maybe the chargeback rule in and of itself a served a purpose back in 1970, but today yeah. might not do so. Secondly, and the most important piece of this, even a bad construct, if it is standardized and normalized and applied consistently across an entire value chain, right. even a bad construct can work. But right. unlike this particular construct, you have 14,000 issuers. Those are the guys that issue credit cards to consumers who don't really understand all the chargeback rules. They are a cost center, chargebacks, phone calls, dispute inquiries, cost center to these 14,000 issuers. So we have 14,000 issuers all doing something different, all using different systems, different rules, different write-offs. You have 10,000 processors, ISOs, and acquirers. Some of which are actually making a lot of money off chargebacks. Most of which are not acquirers, by the way. They're the ISOs that are making the money. Right. And you have an acquiring. You have you know thousands of acquiring banks who, in the last ten years, have been merged, bought, sold, right, outsourced. Okay, so you basically have ten thousand processor issuer ISOs, all treating chargebacks completely different, and not one of these players have invested a dollar in building systems that allow them to really understand the problem refunds chargebacks disputes the whole thing right right so so i would say that is comes under the label of a lack of consistency of application of the rules a lack of consistency of application of the rules if you have an inconsistent application of rules then you have no rules in my opinion then to add you know more to this we have four schemes who can't even agree with each other on what the chargeback rules are. So they all want to use different chargeback rules so that they are differentiated as a particular scheme. And you're talking about Visa,
0: so, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover, I'm assuming?
1: That, that's correct. Right. And anyone else that's coming to the table, right? right? right. All the alternative payments that are coming to the table, everyone sure. has a different view. Um, so you have a really bifurcated market, massive fragmentation. Uh, lack of understanding and a tremendous cost center where very few people are going to invest in cost centers, right? right? Uh, only people that benefit from taking away those costs from an industry invest in uh, building systems. And that's what we've done. We've made a lot of investments in trying to make this uh, a more consistent process across the entire value loop. If we were really successful, we would literally cannibalize the concept of a chargeback. We think it's antiquated, archaic, and incredibly difficult to enforce.
0: Sure. Well, and I think one thing, too, stepping back, a couple things you said. I mean, first of all, I think my audience, generally speaking, will agree with you 100%. I think the agents and the ISOs recognize that, to your point, I mean, chargebacks have really just become another revenue item for uh, the ISO. But the problem with that is it's very frustrating for the merchant and so, in an industry where the sales pitch is predicated on value, you know, uh, uh, savings, and kind of a, uh, you know, uh, almost like it's turned into a utility, it's like we're trying to save the merchant money. You know, something like chargebacks, if our industry really understood them and they could actually make a, an impact, that would be a great uh, added value to be able to go in and talk about. So. Let's transition a little bit and talk about, you know, we, we've established a problem, and again, I think everybody listening is like, yeah, we agree with you, Gary, chargebacks uh, are a terrible problem. So what exactly does Chargebacks 911 do to actually make some progress and solve some of these issues?
1: So what, what we initially did was focused on um, really prolifically, um, what's the word for it, um, prolific, uh, uh, exposure to chargebacks is there's certain verticals, especially in e-commerce that just sure. tend to have more chargebacks in nice. other areas. So we cut our teeth there.
2: Right. We
1: begin reversing chargebacks. One, there is, you know, there is the beauty of prevention. Everyone wants to prevent the chargeback from the get go. And that's awesome. Okay. Right. But we need to understand that if you introduce too much friction into e-com, you won't have a sale. Right. So
2: sure.
1: the, the best way never to get a chargeback is to either never take never take payment through a mechanism that allows for the chargeback. If you're the merchant, there's forty million merchants, they're all suffering from chargeback. Right. They're all suffering from degraded margin, right? Their margins are being degraded as this becomes a more commoditized marketplace. Right. You can't keep introducing thirty BIPs, 03 uh, point three percent friction into a marketplace when the merchant is no longer making 8 10 12 15%. They're making right. 1 to 3. A grocery company makes 1%. Right. Uh, a, a profit. If right. he 30 bps of his charge 30 bips gets lost, that's 30% right. uh, of his revenue. Right. So we first go into a process with a merchant and identify how much of these are real chargebacks meaning real criminal intent to sure. deceive. Sure. We define fraud one way and only one way. The intent to deceive. Okay. We don't care. Notice, I have never said anything negative about a consumer here.
2: Right.
1: I, know, I know, consumer can't file a chargeback. That's the, that is an absolute lie. The only people that can file chargebacks are issuers or schemes. So consumers don't have the nuclear codes, and we don't believe that two percent of the whole economy are criminal consumers or people that can't afford to buy something. If it is, if that's true then we have way, way too many great values in payment companies, card schemes, issuers. Their value should be less. So we're, we decline 10% of every transaction on the planet. Why? Because of some construct called chargebacks. So first off, we go into the merchant. We do an analysis. We determine how much of this is true. Let's say a bucket of 100 chargebacks. Right. How many of these chargebacks are true criminal fraud? How many of them which is, by the way, the smallest piece. We've done millions sure. of these cases. Okay, yeah. the smallest piece, which is representative of a good industry, the absolute smallest piece of this is true criminal intent, bad consumers, people stealing. Okay, we—it's just not a big number. Sure. Uh, the fraud filters have done a really good job of, of of isolating stolen credit cards.
2: Right.
1: The second biggest piece is about thirty percent. Could be fifty. Is merchants making mistakes. Now, one of the things that we noticed when we hired these five or six companies when we were a merchant is that we have always seen the chargeback as a uh, temperature gauge, a symptom, if you will, a fever. Okay. It's mm-hmm. not the problem. It's the, the fever is telling me, the 102 degree fever, the chargeback is telling me there must be something wrong right. with my immune system. If I go see a doctor and all he wants to do is give me an Advil or an aspirin, I'm probably going to move to a doctor that says, hey, why do you have this fever in the first place? Let's go solve that problem right. and your fever will go away. So for 25 years, a lot of vendors have been out there making money on treating the symptom. We are trying to look for the pro- the true problem. So we basically built something called ISD, Intelligent Source Detection, that uses chargebacks and it provides a feedback loop in real time, real time being within day, back to the merchant saying, hey, this charge back here looks like merchant era. If you fix your descriptor, as an example, you're selling coffee beans, but your descriptor says one, two, three, mm. there may be an easy fix there. So the first <laughs> thing we do is we get the merchant in a position where we know he's not experiencing criminal fraud. Secondly, he's operationally compliant. You know, you can go do underwriting all day long yesterday. But are you compliant today? If your sales go from 300 sales a day to 3000, there are very few people on this planet including Jeff Bezos that can handle that kind of deal flow, that kind of ex- volatility in in volumes without some friction internally. And this is where we come in. So, once we have intelligent source detection going we are basically showing the merchant where he's making mistakes relative to his peers in that vertical so this is really really important for a merchant who's doing his own chargebacks and he does you know a thousand chargebacks a month in digital the problem with that is he doesn't actually know what normal is let's say he's a digital player on games but he doesn't know what a digi- uh, other digital gamers are experiencing, or he doesn't understand what maybe retailers selling clothes are experiencing in terms of disputes, refunds, chargebacks, and declines. Sure, sure. So we have a way, because we're neutral, of being able to look at all these factors and say, hey, that's not normal. Right. We don't know exactly what your problem is internally,
2: but, we but know that
1: them. statistic is not normal. Right. So now we've given them a feedback loop. Very few people I know want chargebacks okay so a merchant that doesn't look at this report is probably not going to survive right (laughs) so now what are we left with without criminal fraud and without operational errors what other reason would there be for a chargeback other than what you know is friendly fraud what i call a system failure okay (laughs) We, we need to quit calling it friendly fraud it is system failure yeah. Okay, $318 billion in declines last year. If declines aren't related to chargebacks, what are they related to? Hmm. I, I, don't, I think very few people have put these two pieces together, which we find amazing. Okay. Declines and chargebacks are absolutely correlated.
2: Sure. If you can
1: reduce all the false positives from chargebacks, which, you know, people suggest, Javelin suggests there's $50 billion worth of, uh, worth of chargeback exposure. I think it's probably bigger than that. Yeah, um, It's at least 30 bits, right? That's these and MasterCard's numbers. Right. So in a $3 trillion market? That's a lot of money. Wow. Well, it's, it's a lot of damage, okay? Because yeah. well, the, the problem is, I get back to my consistency of application. There are 40 million merchants on this planet. 14 of them do very little with chargebacks 14 of them and and the the thing that the consumer shares in common with all merchants and all processors is these 14 merchants okay and they're the big boys and they've just never cared about chargebacks and when people really understand how how many chargebacks some of these mega companies get it is staggering yeah okay digital players physical players uh, you know, big big brick and uh, mortar retail players. I mean, name them and chargebacks are a problem. This is not something most merchants or banks want to talk about. It's, it's kind of the, right. the, the, the disease of an industry. Um, and this is where our commodity background comes in because we've helped shape markets right. to work very, very effectively with products that are far more important than a glass of water or a cup of coffee. like electricity, natural gas, crude oil. These markets, pension funds, equities, commodities, these marketplaces don't have friction like this. They don't decline 9% of every transaction. They don't have refunds. They don't have chargeback dispute rights. These are big players selling products back and forth in a stabilized marketplace. Um, And that's where we see e-com going. You can't keep breaking transactions uh, I mean, I read an article the other day that the United States, on average, declines 22% of every transaction. That's crazy, man.
0: That's Yeah, that is. That's insane. Well, okay, so right? let's— If it
1: was half of that, it would be too high.
0: Right. So let's let's zoom out for a second because there's two things I wanted to, to dig in a little bit deeper to. So first of all, one thing that you sure. mentioned is a specific example that I think would be— a really helpful way for uh, those listening to kind of visualize this problem. You mentioned like the descriptor. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what you're basically saying is, you know, a lot of times, let's say we have a, uh, let's say we have a pizza shop and the pizza shop is actually owned by an entity called John and Bill LLC or whatever. And so they set their merchant account up and through some mix up with underwriting or whatever the descriptor meaning the the description that actually shows up in the consumer's bank account says bill and john llc instead of xyz pizza shop and you're saying that you know the consumer sees that and says i didn't spend any money at a place called you know john and bill's you know llc and they need to just change yep. that descriptor and something as simple as that could be causing a lot of chargebacks that maybe the merchants losing money and they don't even realize why
1: yeah, and, and and the poor guy that hired the person to look at it, the merchant, why would they know Why would they even think about looking at the descriptor? Right? <laughs> right they they right. boarded this thing two years ago with WorldPay. Right. The descriptor, maybe the descriptor got truncated. Okay, maybe the phone one eight hundred number got truncated by two digits, and they can't make a phone call. Sure. Maybe your yeah. URL is wrong. Maybe your pricing, you actually did a double bill pricing, and you, you made a mistake. Right. Maybe you said 1995 and it showed up as 1962. Right. I mean, there's, these are, you know, and these are people, consumers are, you know, going through their list and looking for charges. I mean, I'll give you a great example. My wife, who's my partner, filed a $14,000 chargeback against a company that I had literally bought a vault from. I was wondering why it hadn't been delivered to my home. I get a phone call one day and guy says, Hey, did you file a chargeback? I'm like. No. He's like, well, we, we, could, we had to stop delivery. Now, this poor guy, my wife didn't ask me because I'm traveling all over the world. Right. She sees the transaction for fourteen grand. That's what she looks for. She doesn't go to the descriptor. She's looking for the dollar numbers. Right. She sees fourteen grand sticking out like a sore thumb, doesn't recognize the descriptor, doesn't bother to call me, calls American Express and says, hey, that ain't it. Well, right. it wasn't her. She's right. It was not her. That is an honest, tr- the problem though, and this is the problem with automation. All your people that are listening to this are going to be pitched by all these robotic emulation automation tools, which is awesome. We have all of that. We have tons of technology here. However, technology is only as good as the input going in. Right. My wife told American Express a lie. Now, she, I didn't say She lied. Right. <laughs> but she told them something that wasn't accurate. Sure. Okay. She didn't know it wasn't accurate. American Express didn't know it was not accurate. The poor merchant doesn't know what to do. And the bloody guy that bought the stuff is not even aware of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is why I say we have too many people in, in the kitchen trying to make a meal. Right. And it, it ter- keeps turning out to be broken. Uh, so. Sure. You know, I'll give you another example. I I tried to buy, this is a great example. I tried to buy some tennis uh, Wimbledon tickets in in England last year for $10,000. And I get declined three times. And then my card gets gets wiped out by American Express. I I like American Express. I'm not trying to beat them up in this phone call. Right. Therefore, I go on LinkedIn and say, hey, why would y'all decline this? Of course, American Express calls me within 12 seconds shows you the power of social media,
2: right. um,
1: and they said, hey, look, did you try to buy uh, tennis tickets from the merchant called Adian? Well, there's no merchant called Adian. So, of oh. course, I'm going to say no. No, I didn't, try, I didn't do that. That must have been fraud because there is no mer- – I've never even recognized the name Adian. Um, so, so, we just have a lot of people in the payments value chain right. that don't have accurate data, and right. by accurate, I mean true accurate, real data, right. what happened. Right. Sure. Right. So, so sorry for the long examples, no, but good. I think, I they're think really valuable example.
0: It is. it is. I think a lot of the people listening just really don't think about that kind of stuff. And, you know, and again, I, I think it's interesting because the chargebacks, the refunds, all of this, it's, it's kind of in the mind of most of the ISOs and agents. They know it's a mess, but it's kind of like a mess that they feel like they don't have any control over. And so, therefore, they don't use it in their pitch. They don't use it in their value proposition of what can we do to help the merchant. They just don't think of this as something that they can add into their you know, value exchange. And it, it really is. It's, it's definitely a, if not a fixable problem, it's a problem that can be you know, definitely minimized. Um, so, so, just to back up a little bit to clarify so, when we're talking about fixing this with Chargeback 911, if I'm understanding you correctly, you have software this software is going to tie in with, you know, Worldpay or Thesis or whoever, uh, the merchants using to get this transactional data. You have algorithms and, and systems that are running that are identifying, you know, inconsistencies or issues and then you're presenting that to the merchant in some type of a report or dashboard and uh, giving them the information that they need to fight the chargebacks. Is that accurate?
1: Well, well, actually we go beyond that. So, okay. um, m- most merchants that we know and we know a lot of them most ISOs, acquirers and issuers did not get into the business to manage chargebacks.
2: Of course. Okay. We
1: have clients with 50,000 chargebacks a month. They are not big enough to handle their own cases. Right. Okay. So secondly, they have a bias. Okay. Our view is you need to remove all the players from the bias. Right. Okay. That's another problem here. Inconsistency of rule process. Bias is introduced by every player, and that includes the schemes. The schemes make a lot of money from chargebacks. The, the, the issuers, it's a cost center. The acquirers, it's a cost center in both terms of OPEX and not taking as many transactions as they could, could take. Right. If we're right and Google's right, which Google and us say 82 to 86% of all chargebacks did not need to occur. It was system failure. What the industry causes is friendly fraud. If that's true, if you could eradicate half of that, would declines increase or go down? I would suggest declines would go down. We'll loosen our fraud filters. Right. 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 So we have, we have transactions flicking through three and four fraud filters before it gets back to the consumer, which is pretty crazy.
2: Right.
1: Um, so we will literally go in and fight those chargebacks. Using one standard, 24/7, 365 days a year. We have 315 people here, right. so we will fight the chargeback on behalf of the merchant in a very consistent manner, not obfuscating what's actually going on, but actually do it in a really standard way. Now we can prove to the schemes and to the acquiring bank, hey, this is a legitimate merchant. Seventy percent right. of his chargebacks are being reversed. that proves two things one it proves the merchants compliant it proves the acquiring bank that took the business is compliant and it's proving further that we have system failure that we're using archaic rules in an e-com frictionless world okay and adding 3d secure 2.0 3.0 6.0 it's just introducing friction
0: yeah. And I think, you know, it's too, not solving any problem. You know, the interesting thing, too, Gary, is you just brought up another really good point that I think a lot of uh, agents and even smaller ISOs may not fully understand that the, you know, another big issue for merchants with chargebacks It's not just about the money that they're losing because of the chargeback. It's also about their the reputational damage where their account could literally get shut down or, especially in e commerce, this happens a lot where it's like, hey, you're high risk we're not even going to take your business anymore. You're going to have to go to a high-risk provider at 6% flat rate or something like that. So, I mean, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, that's, that's a really big issue, right? I mean, a lot of merchants almost care more about that than they do even the money they're losing.
1: Well, I, I think that's true. And I think also, if I may get on my bandwagon again about an inconsistency sure. of applied uh, conditions is that, um, let's say we have a merchant that's selling uh, hair products. And he's got, you know, he, he tends to be, uh, you know, really high. He's a high risk guy. Right. Uh, he gets shut down yet. We have major retailers. I'm talking some of the largest retailers in the, in the world, uh, that are exceeding 1%, but they are allowed to continue. Right. So when you have one set of merchants that are allowed to do one thing and sure. another set of merchants that are allowed to do another thing, it's going to be messy, right? It's going to be so. so I get back to hey, we need standards. We need right. one set of rules for everyone, and we would suggest that too many people are touching the chargeback. Yeah. You know, if I tell you a story about my first date, and then you tell six other people, right. my first date's going to turn into a train wreck, right? <laughs> At about person four, right. Uh, especially with my personality, people are going to go, oh, yeah, Gary dated 17 girls on his first date on a jet, you know. Right. uh, Right. So so this is what's happening in chargebacks. You have an issuer in England with, you know, a dislike for a particular MCC code. They have exposure. And so they're right. Hey, look, we don't want to take this exposure. I mean, we think some of these chargebacks are being filed by issuers. And the consumer never even bothers to call.
2: Right, right.
0: Yep. No. Now, definitely. Now how
1: scary is that?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So,
1: and we don't even know how big is that. What if? What if I told you that number is thirty percent? Right. That would be frightening, wouldn't it? Right.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Twenty or thirty million chargebacks a year being lifted because the issuer just doesn't like the descriptor or the MCC code.
0: Right. Sure. Really. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not like that's. So a, there's a it's much not like that's better a crazy way to, to fix I mean, this. Yeah.
1: It's not crazy. It's yeah. not a crazy number. I mean, we got we – got, uh, a report just came out the other day that said that 12% of every purchase made online is done so under the influence of a drug or alcohol. <laughs> well, does that make it okay for the guy not to pay?
0: Right. No, of course not.
1: Does that make – well, exactly. If I hit somebody on the street under the influence, I go to jail. Right. In payments, I get a refund.
0: <laughs> right. Wow, that's yeah, that's, right. that's a really good point. Never even thought of that one. So, well, well okay. I'll so let me. Hear-
1: man. I'm here
0: for- that's it. Yeah. So you've already given so much really good information. I want to dig into two really specific practical questions for our listeners, just to make sure I understand. So, number one question is. Obviously, this is going to be disproportionately valuable to really big merchants and e-commerce merchants specifically, but we have a lot of ISOs and agents that target a lot of physical location, retail, restaurant, auto repair, hair salon, nail salon, you know, this kind of thing, you know, businesses doing sure. less than 100000 a month in volume. So my first question is... Does chargebacks 911 do you have a reasonable cost effective program that you know an ISO could hook up their smaller merchants or is this something that's really more applicable to the larger merchants?
1: Well, um, let, let, let me so, so we think of so we have we have two programs we have a program that allows for a guy with three chargebacks a month. To deal with this problem. Okay. That's not what we built our business on, but we do have that program have that where program. an ISO that's okay. got a thousand merchants and they've got three chargebacks each, right. there's a solution for them to acquire. That's easy peasy for us. Good. But our target yeah. really is a guy with 50, 70, 100 chargebacks or more. And there's people right. with ten thousand, twenty thousand, 20,000. Um, big volumes, ticket prices all over the place where we go in and we either you know, provide the automated solution for them, right. or we just do the whole front to end. They don't have any operating expense. We do all the chargeback representments for them. We provide reporting. We provide a profile every day to the CFO CEO of, hey, you've got 400 mids, four mids, or three mids, and this is how you're trending. By the sixth of the month, every one of this guy's clients will know whether they're going to breach or not. most of our guys never breach Mm -hmm. but it's good to know if you're going to have a problem and you should know that proactively sure and if you don't know it by the sixth of the month there's a problem yeah so you just don't have the right supply of of data
2: sure
1: um and the cool thing is we guarantee the service so if i don't recover ten dollars or whatever we we're trying to recover they don't pay anything sure so it's 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 trying to be a win-win for the merchant because we believe that a sustainable merchant is really good for the value chain of processing right we believe that the only people that fund the value chain of processing are merchants
2: yeah.
1: that, that's the only thing so we need to take care of these people no sure. one has taken care of the merchant in 20 years they've just been taken from the merchant
2: right we
1: just wanted to build a system that merchants and our clients would really value yeah it's good old-fashioned 101 business right sure
0: yeah love it okay awesome all right so then the other question I have about this is, um, I'm assuming from your description so far that this solution is basically processor agnostic, acquire agnostic. I mean, you know, you guys are working with WorldPay, First Data, what like pretty much if an ISO is currently selling merchant services and they want to reach out and partner with you guys for this service, um, you're going to have to have some way to get that data. And I'm assuming you already have a lot of relationships in order to accomplish that.
1: Yeah, we started in uh, in in, in you know, six years ago. So we have over twelve hundred connections now to gateways, Good. CRMs, that's what I thought. Uh, acquiring banks, issuers, schemes. Mm-hmm. We do, you know, we we release VMPI, which a lot of your ISOs would be really interested in. We're basically wow, that's awesome. making Visa really alert cool. program. Oh dude, we got it. We have more alerts than anybody in the world under <laughs> one house.
2: That's awesome. We've got our own
1: yeah, uh, MasterCard Visa. Uh, the group and out uh, verified group Anobia and uh, Discover and our own proprietary uh, alert tool. So nice, um, awesome. It's not it's not the first thing we apply. We right. want to apply data first. Sure. understand what the issue is. Um, so did did that help yeah, answer that your answers, question?
0: Yeah, that answers it. Great. So. So the last thing I'm going to get to here is I want to make sure we know where to send people if they want to learn more about this. But before we get to that, one question I always like to ask uh, successful entrepreneurs that I have on the podcast. um, You know, a lot of people listening are really small business owners in in their own right. You know, they've got a, a team of 30 salespeople and they're out selling merchant services and they're trying to get to the next level. Do you have a piece of advice? You know, you've built several very successful businesses. Do you have a piece of advice for these entrepreneurs who have a business and they really want to take it to the next level? What's something that you would share with them to really help them to grow their business? Just some general advice.
1: I, I think the 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 thing that I see in this industry more than uh, some other industries I've, I've seen, uh, and I think it's because fintech and tech fin is so exciting. Yeah, that um, the mistake I see a lot of young entrepreneurs making is what I call the rubbernecking or the, the glitter, uh, the grass is greener kind of phenomena where you know, they're going down the road, they're, they're, they're doing okay, but they maybe misunderstood how long it was going to take for their ramp. Right. Then some guy comes along and says, hey, I have this little problem. Could you help me with it? He goes and helps him with the problem, solve, you know, gets 10 grand for it so he can pay the bills this month. The problem is he lost his focus. So sure. I, I, I think two things happen. One, people either raise too much money uh, or or they don't raise enough IQ. But I, I think <laughs> money is not the problem. It's focus.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and, and uh, the, the, if you just – like I have been laughed at many times in many industries that I like literally walk over nickels, dimes, and dollars. A guy from J.P. Morgan said – did you just run, walk over more nickels and dimes? And I just looked at him and said, dude, that's not my business. Right. My business is not nickels and dimes. I appreciate there's an opportunity there, right. but I'm a limited human being. Yep. I just can only do so much. Yeah. So I focus. It's always work for me. I'm not greedy. Leave fat on the table for someone else yep. and develop long-term relationships with people. Mm. That, oh, that's my, that's, even in the internet age.
0: Yeah, that's such good advice. I, isn't it interesting? Like, I was talking to my wife about this uh, a few weeks ago. I was saying that, you know, when I was like 19 years old, first getting into business, I always thought the issue was where am I going to find opportunity? And now that I'm actually successful in business, I look at it and go, no, no, no. Like The problem is never where's the opportunity. The problem is there's so much opportunity you've got to be willing to say no to like 99% of it so you can really focus on one thing and, and have an impact. Is that, Has that kind of been your experience as well?
1: Listen, somebody called us up nine months ago and wanted to give us Mexico to go manage chargebacks, 50,000 chargebacks. That's a company maker, okay? Right. 50,000 chargebacks a, a month is a company maker. We told them to pound sand. Right. We're not interested. Right. We are heavily invested in Europe. We're heavily vested in America. We have more business than we can say grace over. Why would I become a pig and go focus on something that's going to require me like a lot of tool up a lot right. and, and no surety that it's going to be there long term. Sure. Now we think other people will chase that little, that dime down the road. Right. Um, good for them. and that's cool. <laughs> Maybe somebody builds a good business. It's awesome. Right. We'll buy them later. Right. That'd be awesome. <laughs> exactly. But, but I think I agree with you, man. There's so many opportunities. I mean, we literally shed two businesses over the last two years cause they were very, um, they brought in a lot of money. Right. But they they were not a part of the, the long term right. game plan. Yeah. So I basically said no to six million dollars. Right. Because I thought it was costing me money long term. So exactly. I think you just got to be disciplined and 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 focused.
0: Yeah. wow, great. And, stuff. And, and if
1: you realize you're in a bad trade, then you you switch. You know, yep. you, you go okay, the trade's bad. I need to pivot a little bit.
0: Right. Right. And that's such good advice. And like you said, in this industry, especially right now, when it's like, you know, and like a really specific example, I mean, even individual sales professionals in this industry, I talk to every day and it's like, hey, I found this new loyalty rewards program or this marketing thing that I can go pitch to merchants. And I'm like, well, that's cool, but what are you selling? Are you selling merchant services, or are you selling, you know, you've got to lead off of something and focus on something to build a portfolio. And I think it's very easy to get distracted, as you said, especially with FinTech and all the other cool things going on, which are great. But, you know, you've got, you got to pick your niche, and then you've got to dominate. So,
1: great, yeah, I agree with you, man. Great I mean, there, stuff. And there's a lot of ISO guys that, that they're good sales guys. They just don't have a, a, a great platform. Right. right, they just right. and I think that's they're struggling because they just don't have that platform that allows them to sell. Right, um, I mean we're looking for guys on the west coast right now that that emulate ISOs. they you know we're right. it's the same kind of pitch, of right? Sure. Same kind of service. Just open for us. It's a better pitch because we're not relegated to one acquiring bank. I mean,
2: exactly.
1: Literally, it's forty million merchants is our addressable market, right. and every acquirer right. and every issuer.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, well, awesome. Well, this has been great, Gary. Lots of great information. Before we go, definitely want to make sure uh, I get the information out there to anybody that's interested. So if you have an ISO uh, that's looking to partner with you, looking to get more information, where would you send them?
1: Send them just direct to me, and I'll I'll move them to Gary at chargebacks911.com. It's plural, chargebacks911.com. Gary, G-A-R-Y. And I'll make sure it gets to the right guys, whether it's in Europe or here. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks again, Gary, so much for your time today. It was uh, just great talking with you, and I think it's a lot of valuable information, so appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you, and keep up the good work. I love you, Chef.
0: All right. Thanks, Gary. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere.
3: Well, I want to report today on an emerging trend, payments that leverage the so-called Internet of Things. But first, allow me to take a brief trip down memory lane. Back in the 1980s, I managed a group of financial services newsletters. EFT was a novel idea at the time, and we had a a newsletter focused exclusively on this. One of the reporters prepared an article on a concept that hadn't yet made it through beta testing. It was called home banking. I recall someone she quoted who speculated that eventually we'd be able to do everything from our living rooms that we were now going to branches to accomplish. The only exception, he predicted, was there would be no hand reaching out and handing us cash. And he was right. And the exception proved not to be a deal breaker either, since it's pretty easy to load cash on the mobile wallets from your desktop or even your mobile And it's easy to put money in the bank from the comfort of home or anywhere using mobile deposit. So if the Internet of Things lives up to its promise, we could soon be making payments via smartwatches, Wi-Fi connected refrigerators, or even from our dashboards. But then maybe not, as research suggests consumer security concerns could be a stumbling block. Worldwide, 26% of consumers who own voice assistants have used those devices to make payments, according to a recent survey by Transaction Network Services. Among Americans, it's 30%. And not surprisingly, consumers between the ages of 25 and 44 are most interested in using these voice assistants to make payments. Now, to provide some perspective, consider that Juniper Research estimates there were 2.5 billion voice assistants worldwide last year and it expects that number to rise to about $8 billion by 2023. The march to digital voice assistance is being led by smartphone based apps like Google Assistant and Apple's Siri. Teases in its latest U.S. consumer payment study reports that about one in five adult Americans is either likely or very likely to use connected payment devices. Half, on the other hand, are either unlikely or very unlikely. So I think that's a pretty yeah telling statistic right there you know mm. and and this may be one reason why 74% of consumers worldwide 71% of Americans told TNS that security concerns would prevent them from using these voice assistants to make payments mm. and of course not surprisingly women were more concerned than men about the security issues which brings me to another interesting data point from T- from the TNS survey nearly 2 out of 3 consumers 66% they are always looking to use the fastest and most convenient payment option provided it is secure sure and in the U- and in the US that was 70% not yeah. su- no surprise there right so and just a few words about connected devices because I find this very intriguing you know the notion of connected of a connected refrigerator just oozes convenience doesn't it I mean <laughs> yeah sure so it should come to as- little surprise that among those surveyed for TNS, 45% said that if they had a Wi-Fi connected fridge, they'd make payments for groceries using the appliance's touch screen or compatible app. Of course. And he, and here we go, James. Younger consumers were more enamored with the idea, as were men.
0: Well, there so you go. I know
3: between the, you and I, you're definitely the one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what's so funny, Patty? You bring this up, and uh, my wife, Christina, who, as you know, we've talked about, is not the most... Uh, you know, tech savvy or tech savvy, sure, you know, right? Uh, she ha- is has decided to make the the switch to doing her grocery shopping through Walmart's new online service where you just go drive up yep. and they bring it out to you. Right, um, right. So yeah, I mean, you know, the concept of then. You know, in, in 24 months that's when we connect our fridge to the Wi-Fi and, and she can make that order, you know, right with there. assistance of like, do I have milk? Or Yeah, I do. You know, like, oh, yeah. I mean, right? I think that's yeah. uh, – it'll take me a little while to convince her to do it, I'm sure, but <laughs> we'll get there. I
3: bet you, but it's not a big leap. I, no, I don't think, I don't think so. I
0: that's think it's I think it's a nat- – I mean, if it works. And see, I, I think – And that's the big if, right? Yeah, and, and I think one of the things you bring up, I mean, even stuff like I was looking at some data on um, Alexa. Uh, Alexa has some of the most prevalent like voice payment apps right now, um, right? Where you know you might say something like, "Hey Alexa, uh, you know, order me a new whatever on Amazon," and it's you know new tr- uh-huh. new gar- order garbage bags on Amazon, and then okay, would you like to pay using card ending four five three six? Yes, you know that's so I think that's right. kind of a practical example of it. But the problem is, you know, really voice recognition is just still not. It's it's there. it's ninety percent there, but the last ten percent. I talk to Jack, my business partner, all the time about this. He's a world class developer, and you know he's like you know the last ten percent is the hardest. Um, mm-hmm. It takes Always a long right? time. Yeah, it takes a long time. So I think we're still. I think twenty four to thirty six months from now, the the fifty percent that said no, we wouldn't do it because it's not secure enough. Those I people, think I think, will be down. more comfortable. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, I I think you're right, and and I do think that the things like the Walmart and we have a. A chain here called Giant Eagle they yep, do the same sure. thing you know um, and they bring it out to the car I have a I have a friend who's a new mom you know um,
0: don't want to get that baby out of the car grocery- seat?
3: right never has to take the baby out of the car seat right' She's, you know she says I do it I do it from my phone <laughs> I stop it you know before I leave and when I'm there it's already and I you know Christine is a similar example makes it so much easier when you're a mom yeah um absolutely. to be able to do that. Well, that kind of brings me to connected cars, because okay. those are cool, too. Yeah. They are tethered to the to the Internet, obviously. Of course. And they can help drivers do all kinds of things, like starting and stopping, accessing real-time in, you know, traffic information, and even making pa- payments via dashboard controls. Hmm. Uh, according to TNS survey, nearly half, 48% of consumers, said they were eager to purchase a car with payment capabilities. Hmm. said they would be willing to make payments for things like fuel and parking this way if they owned a connected car. And 53%, I love this one, like the idea of ordering ahead and paying for coffee from the convenience of the car's dashboard.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the first. When you said that, the very first thing I (laughs) thought of was how annoying it is when you go through a drive through for anything. You know, Anything, trying to right? hand that card out, then you get your food, you got to take your wallet out, then you got to try to put your card back in your wallet and put your wallet away fast enough to grab the drink they're handing you, and it's like, oh, my word, you know?
3: Oh, my God, and then if you have kids or dogs in the car, you got to make sure that everything right. doesn't get knocked over.
2: Yeah. Right?
3: Yeah, to That'd me, that, awesome. I think it's the coolest thing. So, yeah. So I guess, you know, my take on all this is that consumers crave any new technology or innovation that can save them time, but not at the risk of compromising their personal information and or their financial security. You know, connected devices hold a lot of promise, and payments may become part of that package, but there does need to be some trust building. Sure. And if these things take off, um, they're certainly not going to supplant legacy payment methods because, you know, as I like to say, old payment methods never die. They just move over and let somebody else come join them.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Well, and most (laughs) of that kind of stuff runs over the same rails anyway. It's like, oh, we have a connected car, so let me save my Visa card to this, you know, this, right. you know, car wallet, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, yeah. Yes, I, the
3: car dash wallet? Is that what we're going to call it? Yeah, right?
0: the dash wallet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, the the one interesting thing, though, too, about all of this, Patty, is like, you know, I'm trying to think of the perspective of the individual sales agent, you know, listening to this, to this uh, podcast. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't help but think that they're wondering, how am I going to fit, you know? what sure. be, right because it's like right. you know how does this all work for them and i and i think it's very it's it, it's an interesting thing i think that it just goes to show that if you want to try you know there's still a market i don't think i think it's going to be a long time before the mom and pop pizza shop has the ability to accept a payment from your car you know right. So I think right. you're safe if you're going, you know, smaller merchants. Now, if you're going to go after larger merchant accounts, I think it just goes to show that if you want to go after the medium to large merchants, you're going to have to do your research and find those technology mm-hmm. companies that you want to partner with that you're going right. to you know, offer those services because, I mean, as time goes on, you know – Payments is going to become more integrated. Uh, you're gonna it's going to require more technology, uh, more tech savvy, uh, you know, sales professionals to to make those sales. So I think you know, staying yeah, in the loop, listening to podcasts like this one, you know, you need to know what's going on because the, the if you don't think this kind of stuff is going to happen over the next ten years, you're crazy. Of course, it's All going right. to happen, and and the, then there's going to be things that are happening that right now we can't even imagine. So mm-hmm. this stuff is happening, you know, you as a sales agent or a small ISO, you need to be aware of it. You need to, again, I'm not saying right now you need to go, oh, my goodness, I need to go out and i got to find three new POS providers I can sell for. No, no. I'm just saying no. be aware, stay in the loop because the stuff's coming.
3: The stuff is coming, and, and as you said, James, you know, keep it, you need to keep your, your fingers on the pulse of this so that you know that when it, when it does trickle down to your part of the market – you know who you can partner with, right. who can support some of these new technologies. Yeah, because and you, and, and you better not believe— not only the Internet of Things. Who knows what's going to— Right. I mean, at the rate things have been changing over the last 30 years, I can't imagine what the next 30 years are going to bring.
0: Right, right. And, you know, the great news is you you always know there's going to be a company or many companies who are going to say, hold on, there's this huge direct sales channel we're going to make our amazing technology available for them to sell. So, you right. know, that, and, and that we're going to make this available for ISOs to white label it. You know, there's always going right. to be those technology companies that are going to take advantage of that. And you can see it playing out in our own industry. Of course, we, you have Square and you have Stripe that are not uh, going after that channel. But then there's so many great companies we've talked to on, the po- on this podcast that have similar technology that is for, for resellers. And so you right. just got to always be kind of aware and, and in the know. So really yeah. good stuff, Patty.
2: Yeah, no, no. Thanks.
0: This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. Is statement analysis something that really frustrates you? Whether you're an individual agent or you have a team of agents, we have the right solution for you. We take you all the way through the sales process with a mobile-friendly tool. Whether you're looking to provide that instant quote to the merchant directly on the spot or you're looking to complete a complete and accurate side-by-side comparison. We handle the entire process in one smooth flow, and we even allow you to make marketing campaigns where you can send links directly to a merchant and allow them to get their own quote using our algorithm that predicts interchange costs and using the pricing templates that we've loaded into the system for you. If you want to learn more about our system, visit instantquotetool.com or shoot us an email support at ccsalespro.com, support at ccsalespro.com. So last week we talked about uh, flat rate pricing, before that we had talked about tier pricing and Interchange Plus plus. and so today we're going to talk about subscription rate pricing. Uh, this is something that we're seeing more and more, there's really three or four large ISOs that are offering subscription rate pricing as kind of their primary model. So I think it's worth uh, a quick conversation. It's not going to take me very long today because it's so simple to explain it. If you understand what interchange plus pricing is, you should be able to understand subscription rate pricing. So, really, subscription rate pricing, all it is, is it's interchange plus a dollar amount monthly. A dollar amount monthly. So, you might have, you know, we're going to give you subscription rate pricing. It's interchange plus $79 a month, $59 a month, $199 a month. So, depending on the volume of the merchant, you know, you're going to have a different dollar amount. And so, the key here is it's really nice because you know I like this pricing structure because number one it does give you of course the uh, transparency of you know here's the true cost right but then in addition to that transparency you get the simplicity of we are only charging you X you know you're paying seventy nine dollars a month or whatever right so that's really nice also. If you price it right, it's really a great way to kind of separate the two to make sure the merchant understands, hey, here's, oh look, I got debited $79 or $99. I got debited this money. This is the money that I am paying to the processor, right? Um, and so that makes it really clear and transparent. And then they get their other bill, which is their credit card processing uh, costs. And so they get that one. And so it really makes that clear. Now, um, many of the companies out there doing this, they still are adding a transaction fee. So it's like, you know, they've got to cover their costs. So they look at the transaction fee as a way to cover their cost. So they may have, you know... Uh, you know, a small per item fee and then also a subscription fee and again there's a lot of variations with this and the different companies that are offering it right now. Uh, but this is another model that you're definitely going to see out there. Now the the pitch behind it really is, is just talking about kind of a membership. So the idea would be, hey look, if you pay this fee, just like if you go to Costco or uh, something like that, you know, you pay them, uh, you know, $230 a year or whatever it is and then in exchange for that you're getting a really good discount. So it's kind of that same idea, pay us a monthly amount. We're going to pass through processing to you at cost, uh, you know, with a little bit of our cost in there for a pride and fee or whatever. Um, but the idea is cost plus a subscription rate. So again, very short one today. Um, next week, we're going to dive into cash discounting and then we're going to do surcharging. So, we're going to get to these newer uh, pricing models, and we might take a th- several weeks on those to really dive in and understand them a little bit better. But, really, the ones I've told you about so far are kind of the core ones. You know, you've got your interchange plus, tier pricing, flat rate, uh, and then, of course, subscription rate. And so, those four are really the main ones you're going to see out there in the field today. The other ones you are going to see a lot of are going to be those where you are passing the cost on to the consumer in some way, shape, or form, you know, positioned as cash discounting or surcharging or cash adjustment or whatever it is. So we are going to talk about those variations starting next week. So make sure you tune in to questions from the field to get more information about pricing structures and how the industry really works. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.